because the call to leadership is serious, the qualifications for leadership are serious as well. This is the body of Christ, the very inheritance given to him by God the Father. They are of special worth, not entrusted into the care of just anyone, but only to those who God has called by his will to lead the church. Their call to lead is a call that comes with very specific duties to feed the sheep, to visit the sheep, to pray for the sheep, to set an example for the sheep, to protect the sheep, and finally to shepherd the sheep, as we've talked about. Those functions are weighty, and yet they're very crucial to the very stewardship of his church. Therefore, they come with very weighty qualifications for those who may be called to the role of stewardship over Christ's inheritance. Writing to Timothy, who has been left to contend with false teachers and false leaders and false teaching in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul, by God's leading, discusses not just the various roles within the church and their responsibilities, but he also discusses the standards of those positions, which is where we find ourselves this morning. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, for part two of the message that I've titled The Elder's Call, A Master Over His Own Life. And as always, please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we give you great praise for the opportunity to gather and to worship and to praise you this morning, Lord. Father, we know that comes by your direction and by your will. And so, Father, I pray that indeed this is a time that is pleasing to you. But Lord, we also pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Obviously not physically, because nobody can look upon you and live, although someday we hope to be able to look upon you. But Lord, I pray that you would reveal your character, your wisdom, your truth, 
into our lives. May it pierce our hearts and pierce our souls. May it cause us to look upon you more greatly. And so, Father, we, we ask that in this time, committing it all to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. On July 20th, 1944, Klaus Schenk Graf von Stroffenberg attended a special military conference at Wolf's Lair in East Prussia, and he was accompanied by his personal aide. Each of them carried a briefcase to that meeting, and just before the start, Klaus excused himself in order to use the restroom, and after leaving the restroom, had left his briefcase behind. Klaus's aide, Lieutenant Werner, who also had a briefcase, placed it at his feet, but it got moved out of the way by someone else. And then at 12.30, both of them exploded. Klaus had left the room to attend to a phone call. Werner had followed him, but both briefcases had exploded. They were bombs targeting Adolf Hitler and his top men in something known as Operation Valkyrie. The plan ultimately failed. Hitler survived. Working with two German generals, though, these four men employed a very simple military strategy. Take out the leadership to win the war. Logically, that makes sense. In battles, greater success can be held, had by overtaking the ones that are very responsible for the strategy and the stewardship of opposing forces. This strategy works not only in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm as well. Targeting leadership is a method employed by Satan to undermine the very work of God. Take out the control center in order to exert control over the enemy. Because this logically makes sense, it's really largely a successful strategy and not unexpected. We should expect that Satan will act in that way. For the church, this means that the methodology of Satan is to target the leadership of the church. And the strategy then for the church is to resist such advances. And they do this by ensuring that it has men who, are lo who love God so much and that they will love his people. And that they will love his people by proclaiming his truth, not their opinions of the truth. Men who will not compromise in confrontation. And men who will teach others to stand firm in the faith. Not by giving them examples, but by being the example. And the Lord gives instruction on how we can find men of this caliber and of this commitment. By looking at men who meet his qualifications laid out in his word. The church should have a great interest in finding men that meet God's criteria. But the church and the Lord really have no interest in finding men who meet our criteria. We have proven our standards to be woefully in inadequate comparison to the Lord's. Human standards are our best, superficial, and simplistic. Charles Swindoll notes four erroneous ways or qualifications that people use to identify leadership. Popularity, posterity, prosperity, and politics. 
those who are most known are those who are often the first that are looked upon for leadership. But popularity is not a guarantee of character or of capacity. But neither is posterity. Posterity is that idea that someone should keep a position merely because they've been in it all their lives or for so long. Or that someone is entitled to a position because somebody in their family has held it for so long. But these do not qualify somebody. We see this posterity used in business and charitable organizations and even in churches. I've seen a number of churches fall or fail to grow in godliness because the leaders they had were there were not qualified. They had just put in there because of posterity. They had always held it. Neither is prosperity an appropriate evaluation. Though some may see financial wealth as a sign of the Lord's blessing, there's nothing in God's word to affirm that as a universal truth. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Seeing that having money is no indication of one's moral character. And finally, politics is not an indicator either. A political stance is not indicative of a biblical stance. Though popularity and posterity, prosperity and politics, they may be common measurements in the secular world, they are simplistic and superficial. Those who are qualified by Christ standards rather than the culture standards are those who give all they have to see that Satan does not take all that Christ has. So Satan will target the central command, the leadership, by their faithfulness, seeing and meeting the Lord's qualifications. They will not relinquish control. They will remain firm. So that when Satan attacks the church, they will not abandon it. Therefore, leaders who find themselves in submission to the Lord's call must demonstrate themselves in submission by their character. By this, the Lord protects both his own testimony, but also protects his people. And so we come to these verses here in 2 and 3. And we see five ways in which a leader exercises mastery over his own life. I want you to remember first from last week, his conduct. His conduct. To exercise authority over the church, a leader must first exercise authority over his own conduct. Defined first by this phrase, above reproach here. The expectation of a leader is that his conduct is pristine. So pristine, in fact, that there is no opportunity for a credible accusation to ever be made against him. This does not mean he is without criticism. Remember that the Apostle Paul and even the Lord Jesus Christ were both criticized, and they had their critics. Neither does it mean perfection. Like any person battling the flesh, he is prone to make mistakes. But the question becomes, what is his reputation? Is he known for his anger? Is he known for his contentiousness? Is he known for lacking compassion? Those who lead the church do so as representatives of Christ, and so their character should reflect that of Christ. Related to that is the follow-up phrase, husband of one wife. As we said last week, at the most stringent interpretation, that means that no elder can be divorced. And at the broadest, it means that if he is divorced, then it must be according to biblical terms. But regardless of either interpretation, we must consider godly wisdom and counsel. 
and recognize that it is wise to have a divorced person, if we have them in leadership, to at least examine them thoroughly, knowing that it may open the door to not being above reproach. The role of leadership is so serious that a man must be seriously examined, thoroughly looked upon to see if he meets the Lord's expectations, which is to have mastery over his own conduct. Remember, secondly, his control. One who seeks to control the ch- have control in the church must first show control over himself. He's called to be sober-minded and self-controlled. He's like one who walks the streets at night, remember, who is not paranoid, but is watchful or vigilant. His manners and his methods are calculated. His temperament is temperate. He does not allow himself to lose control over his own faculties, over his own emotions. He does not anger easily. He does not cry easily. Rather, he maintains his senses so that he can accurately assess and respond according to godly wisdom. This is his control. Now, I want you to know third, his character. His character. Before exercising control over the church, a man must exercise control over his character. Noted by the words here, respectable and hospitable. One of the most notable aspects of scripture is that when God issues a call to those who follow him, the emphasis is not on the skills that they have, but on the character they have. It does not matter the role a person is called for, from pastor to janitor. The greatest importance is placed on a person's character over a person's skill. I think there's an important reason for this. Skills can be taught, but character has to be cultivated. Though some skills may take a long time to master, in most cases you can at least teach the basics and give a fundamental, I guess, fundamental knowledge in just a few moments. But character takes time to develop. It gives evidence then of the Spirit's work in a person's life. If it's not evident when he assumes leadership, it will take years for him to get to that point of having the character that God calls upon. The skills of leadership, though, can be taught very quickly. So to have leadership in a church, one must have authority over his own character. Looking at our text, characters manifested by being respectable and hospitable. If you look up the definition of respectable in the Oxford Dictionary, you will find words like important and proper and good. In Greek literature, such terminology was often applied to rulers and leaders. Because a good ruler was one who was respectable, that he was well thought of by people because of his character. But in scripture, this comes with a couple of additional connotations. There's only one other time we find this Greek word respectable used in the word of God. And it's in the previous chapter. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul is speaking of women and he writes, Likewise, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. 
In the exposition of that verse back in the last week of August, we learned that the significance of respectable is one who is well-ordered. Just as a woman's respectable dress is dress that is well-ordered, so a man's respectable character is to be well-ordered. One who has a well-ordered life is one who has ordered his life after the Lord. His priorities, his principles, and his purposes, they are articulated and arranged by God. Perhaps then we could say that the one who develops respectable character is one who respects the Lord. One who develops respectable character is one who respects the Lord. This is because one who respects the Lord loves him and will seek to walk in his ways. And thus that causes him to be respectable. But the leader's character is not just known by his respectability, but in hospitality as well. The function of the church is dependent upon open doors. Open doors in the church and open doors in the homes. To be hospitable is to receive others in a warm and generous spirit. There are college degrees and certificate programs designed specifically for hospitality, whose aim is to train people in business for what is called the hospitality industry. The hospitality industry refers to that section of secular world and secular work whose purpose is to receive and to welcome and to serve guests and strangers. These are businesses like hotels, transportation and travel services, and even restaurants are all considered part of this hospitality industry. But the church finds itself in this role as well. And it begins with the leaders, at least according to our text here. We find hospitality exemplified in Luke chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, when Christ is sending out the disciples and he says, And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whenever they, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And then they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Think about Paul's era a little bit. And when Paul writes our text to Timothy, it is a time of traveling preachers. Paul himself engaged in this mobile ministry, going from place to place. Yet it was also a time of persecution. To show up at an inn then and identify as a Christian could invite violence. And so for safety, they relied upon the hospitality of others. But also remember that churches didn't own property until the third century. So where did they meet? In the homes. So if people didn't open their homes, there was no church. We may now meet in church buildings, but that doesn't invalidate those standards of hospitality. Paul says elsewhere, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And then Peter writes, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why do you think hospitality is a command of the Lord? Why is it so important enough for God to make it a qualification for leadership? Because at the heart of hospitality is the heart of the person. 
One who is hospitable shows his desire to care for others. The word hospitable is a compound word, bringing together the word stranger and the word loving, so that hospitality literally means stranger loving. One who is hospitable shows that he loves people. Let me say that again. One who is hospitable shows that he loves people. If you want to know how much if someone is willing to serve people, you need to only answer the question, how willing are they to have people in their own home? One who is to have authority over the church must have authority over his own character. Do you notice where that godly character came from? In our text, character is defined by respectability and hospitality. And what I said was respectability is cultivated by a heart that loves God. And hospitality is cultivated by a heart that loves people. Loving God and loving others. The two greatest commands of Christ. The development of character comes from obedience to the Lord's commands. This morning we read of Abraham's hosting of the Lord in Genesis 18, in which the Lord appears to Abraham, though he likely doesn't recognize it initially, because it appears in the form of three men. And yet, what does Abraham do? He rushes to serve them. It's a bit reminiscent of Hebrews 13.2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. By his hospitality, Abraham shows his respectability. And so to be qualified for leadership, one must have mastery over his own character. Please note fourth, the leader's capacity. His capacity. The next qualification given for leadership is able to teach in verse two, or verse three. Sorry, it is verse two. As I just told you in talking about the leader's character, I made a statement that the Lord is more concerned about character than skill, and yet now we have listed as part of the qualifications a skill. He must be able to teach. But this particular skill serves a very particular purpose. And it is critical both to the situation in Ephesus, but also to the function of the church today. The church in Ephesus is in great need of qualified teachers. For a time now, that church has had no shortage of teachers. But what the circumstances reveal is that those teachers are merely wolves, intent on exalting themselves and misleading the people. And so now the church is wandering into air and away from the Lord, just as Paul warned them in Acts chapter 20, telling the elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The necessity of being able to teach is critical to avoiding the very situation that the church in Ephesus is in. 
And failure to maintain this qualification will certainly result in the failure of the church. Obviously, the capacity to teach implies that overseers are responsible for imparting the Lord's truth to the body of Christ. It is his duty to bring the word of God before the people, not giving them just knowledge, but to give them understanding. And there is a difference. Knowledge teaches about something. Understanding teaches the people how it's relevant. Knowledge relays information, but understanding relays action, calling them to put it into practice. To do this, the one qualified for leadership must be so sufficiently immersed in the word of God that he knows not only what it says, but he knows how to apply it. And he knows how to apply it appropriately. The next qualification for leadership here is this able to teach, imparting knowledge and wisdom. Sorry, knowledge and understanding. True understanding of something occurs when someone can draw out a principle from the text and then apply it across different contexts, in different situations. The most basic example is what we've already talked about, the greatest command, to love God. Genuine understanding occurs when we can take that principle and tell the person who is finding themselves encouraged and finding themselves growing and say, wonderful, love the Lord your God by praising him then and by continuing to draw nearer to him. And then in the same breath, turn to the person next to you who has just lost a child and say, love the Lord by thanking him for the time you had. Love him by trusting him. That's the kind of ability one who is teaching must have. Taking the truth of God and applying it not just to one situation, but to every situation. But don't overlook something here. The activity of teaching implies something more than just the activity imparting truth. It assumes that the one teaching truth is sufficiently qualified to refute untruth. He must not only be able to teach what is true, but he must be able to teach why something else is not true. Leaders are protectors of the flock. They guard them from false teaching. Though elders must be able to teach, according to 2 Timothy, later on it says that there are others that may teach in the church. Therefore, the leaders must be aware of what is being taught. They must be aware of what is being taught in Sunday school and in the music and in Bible studies, not just from the pulpit. And then they must have the capacity to discern its truthfulness. And when it's wrong, they must be willing to counter it. Listen to what it says in Titus 1.9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Truth always demands action. It always requires a response. We can't read God's truth and remain passive. It requires us to respond, and sometimes that response is to defend it from those who would undercut it and who would seek to mislead. 
that suggests that in their discernment between truth and untruth, they will actually confront falsehood. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. He does not stand idly by and do nothing, but is willing to have those hard conversations and defend against falsehood. That's certainly what was needed in Ephesus. If the one is to take on the role of teaching the church in refuting error, he must have a certain character, though. There actually is a moral quality to this. So able to teach is not just about skill, it's actually about character. 1 Timothy 4.6 says that the one who teaches must have understanding, as we just talked about. But then the next verse, 1 Timothy 4.7, suggests that the one teaching must also have a level of godliness or holiness. That is, the one teaching the things of God must be walking in the things of God. Seems simple enough. But teaching itself is not only associated with certain characteristic traits, but even refuting falsehood comes with needing certain characteristics. One who is called upon to defend the truth must be kind and compassionate, as we read earlier. He must also have the character trait of courage, according to 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 19. He must be courageous to not abandon truth, and courageous in speaking truth against untruth. It is a leader's duty to protect the sheep from the wolves, and if he lacks the courage to do so, the church will surely fall, just as Ephesus did. And then that verse I just read to you, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25, gives us another characteristic. Humility. One who is able to teach must be humble. He must be humble in his teaching and his refutation. Humility is important for a particular reason. Humility makes one teachable. I try to avoid using family as examples, but I'm going to pick on Thomas here a little bit. I've been impressed with Thomas's humility at times when he's on the soccer field. When he's scoring his goals, he's, he's excited, you can tell, but he's not out there celebrating. He gets to the next task. I see a humility in him. That was confirmed this week with a conversation with his coach. And his coach told me, he says, you know, I really like teaching Thomas. And he said, the reason I like teaching Thomas is because when I give him instruction, he not only listens, but then he tries to do it. He tries to put it into practice. It's that humility that makes him teachable. He must be humble in his teaching and his refutation as a leader. Humility makes one teachable. One who is tasked with teaching has to be willing to receive teaching. Howard Hendricks once said, if you stop growing today, you stop teaching tomorrow. To be growing, one must be teachable. One must be humble. A prideful person cannot be taught. Humility recognizes one's own need for growth as much as others have a need for growth. 
And so the one who is humble will live out the teaching. He that means as he speaks will surely do as he speaks, Richard Baxter rightly says. Effective teaching requires living it out, which requires being teachable and being humble. So the call to leadership is a call over the leader's mastery of his own capacity, his capacity to teach. I want you to note fifth, and finally his constraint. A leader shows mastery over his own life by his constraint. So much of what we've talked about has been on the topic of what a leader does. But now verse 3 gives us what a leader does not do. In certain circumstances, a leader must restrain himself. And verse 3 lists out four areas of constraint. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Very quickly, allow me to just walk through these four areas. None of them are surprising. They should be expected. Beginning with that phrase, not a drunkard. Literally, the phrase is beside wine, as in a reference to a person who sits very long at his wine. In the first century, wine was a common drink. And through Ephesians 5.18, it suggests that no believer should become intoxicated. No believer should become intoxicated. And so now we see it again as especially critical for leaders to avoid drunkenness. Speaking to this verse, Martin Luther writes, It's not good that a bishop be drunk even once. It's slightly ironic for me because Luther was sometimes known to drink too much during his nightly discussions, his nightly sessions with students, which he called table talk because they happened over his dinner table. Others will romanticize drinking, uttering the Latin saying, en vivo veritas, which translates in wine truth. But drunkenness is spoken of negatively in the New Testament. Not just because of the drink itself, but because a believer is to be controlled by the Spirit, not by strong drink. Genesis 9 tells us what happens when someone sits long at his wine. Noah, who had just been saved from the flood because he and his family were the only ones found righteous in the whole earth, shows himself prone to sin as well, just as much as any human. When he sits too long at his wine, he becomes drunk. And then what happens? His son Ham sees him uncovered. And then it leads into all these other consequences. The issue is not wine, because later on in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul counsels Timothy to use a little wine for his stomach ailment. The issue is intoxication, because it means that the person is losing control of himself, just as Noah did. One's lack of control can also be found in their temper. A phrase we often use is lose your temper, as in lost control of oneself because of his anger. That's where this phrase here, not violent, comes in. He's not to be a striker like a boxer who settles things with his fist. Instead, he maintains control of his temper. In this case, we are given another characteristic to put in its place. It says, instead of being a striker, be gentle. 
When confronting the Corinthians, Paul says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you or I implore you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It is by gentleness he implores them. A gentle person maintains control of his temper even when he's mistreated. And then related to this is that next phrase, not quarrelsome. One who is quarrelsome is one who is combatant or contentious. He's known for his disagreeable nature, always being against what is said, regardless of understanding it or regardless of the discussion. And then finally, he must not be a lover of money. Like wine, money itself is not the issue. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. And even Abraham, for his time, was a very rich man. But it's the love of money that's the issue. Os Guinness once said, if a man is drunk on wine, you will throw him out. If he is drunk with money, you will make him a deacon. That statement's only slightly tongue-in-cheek. Some look at money as a sure sign of the Lord's blessing or someone's giftedness in business. But the one who loves money is controlled by greed, motivated not by the Lord's control, but by the money's control. Common to each of these is the fact that when unrestrained, they all exert an influence or a control over a person's life. But the one who is tasked with leading the body of Christ cannot be controlled by anything except by the Spirit of God. To lead the people of God, one must be controlled by the Spirit of God. It's easy to identify alcohol and money as idols. But idolatry goes further than that. Sometimes, first off, anything can be an idol. But, but sometimes, just avoiding it actually proves it's an idol. And I'll give an example. Some people are so against talking about a church offering that rather than trying to prove they think little of money, they actually are showing they think a lot of it, and they still make it an idol. But then you look back through to these words of quarrelsome and violence that we just discussed here. Why is someone quarrelsome? Usually because they didn't get what they want, which is what? It shows idolatry. Respect can be an idol. Knowledge can be an idol. Comfort can be an idol. We could be so comfortable that we're resistant to change. We're so content in what we're doing that we would even argue against the Lord's will, what he's revealed to us in his word. That's an idol. We call them idols of the heart. And when they are impacted or when they are threatened, people get angry or quarrelsome. The issue with an idol of the heart is that it will control us. Again, not the spirit of God. Therefore, a leader must be free from this control. He must be under restraint, resisting anything that might seek to control him. A leader shows mastery over his own life by his constraints. If a man cannot maintain authority in his own life, how can he maintain authority in the church? His ability to lead the church is demonstrated by his ability to lead himself. If he cannot exercise a level of authority over his own self, over his own life, how can he ever be expected to lead others in a way he cannot lead himself? And so how does he show authority in his own life? By his conduct, by his control, 
by his character, by his capacity, and by his constraints. Notice it doesn't say by his cognition, by his charisma, or by his comfort. Like Operation Valkyrie, Satan will employ a strategy of taking out the control center, of attacking leadership. He does this first by seeking to cause them to fall. And if they are not qualified, they will fall. They will not withstand that attack. We would not put an unqualified man in charge of an earthly battle. So why would we put an unqualified leader in charge of a spiritual battle? And then if Satan can't break down leadership, he'll try to undermine it by bringing in unqualified leadership so that it just collapses from within. And you know what? It's working. You know how I know it's working? By looking at the churches in the United States and just examining the typical average church most of them lack genuinely qualified leaders. Some of them lack men in leadership. What's a bit scary is that in some cases, the leaders know and don't care. Or others, they're so controlled by something. Something like the popularity or the power or pride. They're so controlled by that that they're not controlled by the spirit. And then even more scarier, some are just so self-deceived they don't recognize it. There's a time and a need for self-examination in the church. We are so distracted by the unimportant things that we've neglected the important things. I was reading a book yesterday, and the author writes this. Again, commenting on the fact that we're distracted by the unimportant things. For when the mind involves itself more than is needful with external things... It is like a man who is so preoccupied on a long journey that he forgets where he's going. And then he says this. As a result, the mind is such a stranger to self-examination that it does not consider the damage it suffers and is ignorant of what extent he errs. The worry becomes not just for the current church, but for the future church. And that leads me to where I ended last week. If the current generation of leaders of the average church lacks qualification, or if the average church with qualified leadership lacks the discipleship of the next generation, who's going to fill their shoes? Rarely would I say the church needs to be like George Jones. By his own testimony, he lacks the very qualifications we just went through. But maybe we need to be asking the same questions he asked. Who is going to fill their shoes? Because the call to leadership is serious, the qualifications for leadership are serious as well. Let's pray. Father God, this is your church. This is the body of Christ. And Father, it is entrusted into the care of people. And so, Father, I pray that our church would take that seriously. But, Father, I pray that other churches would do the same. Father, I pray that you would just create an opportunity for deep, thorough self-examination in which people would be convicted by your spirit and by your truth, seeking to lead people in godliness and holiness. And so with that, may we not compromise on the standards that you have set, Lord. But, Father, may we seek them out and may we love them 
because they teach us to love you more, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word, that you didn't leave us to flounder, but rather, Lord, you very clearly show us what we need to do to protect the body of Christ. And so, Father, we commit this to you, thankful for who you are. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.